You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Here is your host, Jonathan Robinson Lees. In today's conversation, we are joined by Mark Geyer, direct from his new gym in Penrith. Mark shares his powerful story, from his modest upbringing in Whalen to becoming a local icon, rugby league premiership winner, and now business owner. Through Mark's honest perspective, we hear what really motivates him in life, love, family connection, and giving back to those who need it most. Please enjoy the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Mark, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. G'day, Jono. Thank you for having me, mate. I've been listening to it for a while now, so it's it's a pleasure to be on it. Mark, in 2013, you were awarded the Order of Australia Medal for services to rugby league, but more importantly, services to the community and charity organisations. What has it been your motivation to give back to the local community? I've always, I, I, I'm not sure, but I know I was brought up, you know, in Wayland, um, always believing that it's better to, to give than receive. And I don't know, I just, I thought once I, when I finished playing football, I kind of was, was pulled towards charities. I just thought, you know, that when you've got a profile um, like I have in this area, especially in this area, I think that you're crazy not to use it. And my wife said to me once, and I think it was even a, something from a movie, she said, um, too much is given, much is expected. And I kind of thought about that for a while, and I went, what the hell does that mean? And I've been given a lot. I've been given a lot. You know, I've, I've had a pretty controversial career in rugby league and off the field and stuff, but I've been given a hell of a lot. I've got five healthy kids. You know, I finished rugby league and went straight into the media, so I've been one of the lucky ones. So, yeah, and... When, once I was in the media, I had an opportunity to put on a rugby league game for the Queensland Floods, which was a state of origin um, game for, for old players. And I started ringing people, I had a list, I had a hit list of about 50 Queenslanders and about 50 New South Wales players. And I started from the top and I went down. And after about 20 of each, I had my game because not one of them said no. Um, ring Parramatta Stadium, they said, well, We'll house it here for 10 bucks a ticket or 20 bucks a ticket. Sold it out in 15 minutes. Had a magnificent game. Fox Sports broadcast it and we raised uh, $460,000 for the floods victims. So that was, more of a, that was more in a big profound way. But I've got two daughters with epilepsy. Um, so I'm really active in the Ep- Ep- Epilepsy Active Australia um, charity um, and, and local ones you know I do a walk every year from Bathurst to Blacksland with the local Penrith local blokes um, we've been doing that for 14 years and raised about 1.5 mil for the, uh, you know the Penrith kitchen and disabled riders and Springwood hospital so yeah I, I just love love the fact that we I can give somebody something that they wouldn't have otherwise and that public recognition with the LAM, what did that mean to you to, to have your name recognised in such a prestigious way? Yeah, it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. I, I, I always would look see people and wonder what OM and OAM meant and 
And then I got it one day when this lady rang me from the judging committee and said, you've been nominated for an OAM. I said, What's, what exactly does it mean? She said, oh, it's an order of Australian merit. I went, okay, so that means what? I'm, I'm, am I Sir Mark now? Or? <laughs> they said, no, you're not a pommy, you dickhead. Um, so I said, okay. So, yeah, we went down to the governor's house um, with Mari Bashir and um, her, her late husband. Um, and, yeah, I took my mum and dad down, took my wife down and... I must confess, I was rubbing shoulders with some pretty important people, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that I, I never do things for public recognition. That's, you know, I, I have my public recognition as a rugby league player, and w with that comes a lot of pitfalls, and with it comes a lot of windfalls as well. But I, I never dreamt or, or set out once I finished playing rugby league to get an OAM. Um, but it, it is good to be acknowledged, it's good to be recognised, and it's something that they can never take away from me. I remember sitting at Parramatta Stadium at that game for the charity State of Origin game, and it was such an amazing atmosphere, an amazing yeah. experience, really galvanised thousands and thousands of people. Do you believe that sport has that power to bring people together and make positive social change? 100%. Yeah, of course. It's, it's the most powerful weapon you've got um, when you've got a raw emotion at a sporting event and you throw in a bit of tragedy with it you know there's no other way you can you can really reach out to people other than like in, a, in such a magnificent way than, than through sport you know, I just look for instance at the all-star game recently up at Townsville the war cries before the game of both the Maori boys and the indigenous boys well you know if you didn't get goosebumps watching that and think well what am I watching here like it's been a long time since we've seen something so raw and so it's sport, you know, sport brings that because it's so hard to be the best at what you do. And when you, when you become one of the best of what you do, it's, it's, it's all about then giving back to those that, that aren't quite as, as good. So, yeah, sport, is, sport has got an amazing way of helping people in, in times of need. And that's why last year with the, the COVID-19, we were so, you know, everyone was so stressed because we didn't get our fix of rugby league, you know, for a while there, for about seven or eight weeks. So I want to come back even to no crowds, we're rejoicing. And Mark, you represented your country, your state and your hometown. Over the years, how did you define your success as a rugby league player? Well, I used to play with a lot of emotion and, and being a big bloke helped. You know, I, I had to know how to use my size to my advantage and um, all through the, the lower grades, you know, I started with Whalen and North Mount Druitt and Rudy Hill and then St Mary's. I was recognised when I played at St Mary's in the under-16s and I made a, my first rep side ever. I tell a lie, I played under-12 state on the wing and I scored a try at the SCG, which, which is a pretty big highlight. Yeah, but then I was recognised for like it was a, a north-east-south-west type of uh, representing sides out here in the West and I made one of them and a couple of people you know, recognised me and or asked me who I was and they said you know, you keep going, you're going you could be a good player and I, I really think I always carried a bit of a chip on my shoulder as a rugby league player because of the fact that being brought up in Mount Druitt I kind of didn't realise that other people had a, such a negative thought about where I came from until I went I left year 10 and started going for work as an apprentice to different companies. And I just kept getting knocked back, you know. It was about three months and I'm sending 20, 30, you know, t letters of 
to different companies for boiler making, for printing, for this, for that, um, for just anything. Because I wanted to work, I wanted to get straight, you know, and concentrate on working. And I said to Mum, Dad, I said, I wonder why this is, I'm not, you know, getting any return email or return mail or and my nan was with me at the time and nan um, lived at Burwood and she said darling try my postcode I went why nan she goes oh just something different and I did it on the first five applicants and I got um, four return mail so that's when I really thought that I hadn't heard of the term postcode racism but that was when I first thought that shit you know coming from Mount Druid has got a bit of a carries a bit of baggage, so that was kind of my my endeavours were always about trying to make people think that Mount Druitt was just as special as everywhere else. Um, so I always had that kind of chip on my shoulder, and it was it, it, I carried it, it carried me onto the footy field, it carried went with me on the footy field, and when I've made grade as a seventeen year old, Tim Sheens was at the trial game that I played to get on to that team, and I, t- I tackled a couple of blokes and. They got carried off the stretches. I made two tackles, and you know everyone. At first, the, the trainer was calling me Nick Gaya. And I went, "Fuck, it's the most... mate, it's Mark." And he goes, "Oh, whatever." And I said, "I'll show you whatever." And my mum was over here crying, and mum's only sixteen when she had me, so we we're pretty close. Dad was eighteen, you know. So yeah, and then I made I, I, I played this Possums Probables game at, at uh, sixteen and a half against nineteen year olds, and I walked off the field, and Tim Sheens was there watching. The first grade coach. And he said, mate, what's your name? I said, it's not Nick. <laughs> it's Mark. He goes, okay. He said, how would you like to play under 23s this year? I went, wow. I'm only I said, I'm not 17 in December. He goes, that's all right. He said, we'll make sure you, you know, look after you. So that was it. I'd made my, my name and I played every game that year off the bench, but got a run every game. And the following year as an 18-year-old, I was captain of under 23s. And then the following year... I made my first grade debut um, against Canterbury in 1987, first game of the year, and played about 12 games in first grade and then got um, pneumonia. So I came back through reserve grade where Graham Murray, the late great Graham Murray was coach, and um, we won the grand final, uh, 11-0 against Manly. So I played in the grand final in 86, under 23s for Penrith against Souths. We got beat 13-0. Then the following year I played. So I'm the only person in Penrith to ever play in three grades at a grand final and, and win two. So, yeah, and that was it. That was my, I was on the side. But then uh, to answer your question about the aggression and stuff, um, Ron Willie then came to the club in 1988, an old, from the old school, and he called me, started calling me Mountain. He made me wear high heel shoes everywhere I went to away games. So I'd look about six foot seven. I'm six foot four now, but he made me wear these big barter scouts. He said, Mountain, I want you to fucking walk off this plane in Brisbane. We first played Brisbane in 88. He said, I want people to talk about who, how big you are. Well, straight away, as I'm walking off the... He must have had something planted, because as I'm walking off the plane, I'm ducking to get off, because I've had these big high heel shoes on. And um, the following morning on the Courier-Mail, I had uh, Mountain comes to take on the King. Because Wally Lewis is playing for... Broncos at this time. So I, this was way before me and him had our little running. So yeah, the, the, the headlines was that the mountain comes to take on me. And that was it from then, from then on. I was an intimidator. Yeah, Robin Willie said, even at 19, I was, um, <clears throat> he said, I want you to be the bloke that everyone in the other team is scared at the run to. And I'd, I'd make nine, nine or 10 tackles a game. 
Were you okay with that, being the intimidator? Well, not, not at first, because I wasn't that, that wasn't in my, it wasn't really in my DNA. I had it, obviously I had it, because, you know, I perfected the shoulder charge really quickly. But I was always a really skillful ball player, you know, um, and I, I kind of got curtailed with under Ron, but he was there for two seasons, and Phil Gould come, and kind of back to where that Tim Sheens was, you know, he started... Um, encouraged me to promote the ball through both the pass before before the line and, and offloading the line and stuff like that. So yeah, it was. Um, but it was it was fun. I, I'd never I'd never change a thing about how I how it all come about. I just I, I think having all them coaches that I've had and they all took a bit of all, all gave me a little piece of their own self to make me who I was as a player. And going back to your upbringing, you know, grew up in Wayland, as you said. What was your childhood like, Mark? It was great. You know, I never knew that we were poor. Didn't know that mum and dad were working two jobs just to pay our rent. Didn't know that you couldn't break the fibre on the house and use it as chalk for handball courts. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was just... It was, I, I didn't realise that I was 12 when uh, mum and dad would go to work and I'd have to watch my three siblings and dress them and make them breakfast and then take them to school. Because I, I, there was so much love in the house, you know. I remember once for my 12th birthday, mum... My mum came up to me with a... Um, and it's the only birthday present I remember as a kid. So for those that think that, you know, money rules, it's, you know, it's full, full of bullshit. It's, it's all about what, what the... how precious it is to you. My mum came up to me when I was 12 for my 12th birthday. I was about to go into high school. And because my birthday's in December, I just finished year six. And she came up to me and said, with a card and she was crying. I said, what's wrong, Mum? She goes, it's all right, Dad. She, me and Dad couldn't afford too much this birthday, so I hope you enjoy what we've given you. And I'd always, I'd always go down to the stormwater drains and race, you know, with my mates, sticks, and they'd always have upgraded ones, and I'd just have sticks off a tree, and we'd paint them and race them, you know, on, on the water and commentate them. And, and then Mum gave me this, this card, which she wrote on it, and also she gave me 10... Paddle pop sticks, which were painted. I went, Mum, this is the best present ever. And she's cry, started crying more. She goes, darling, you know, she didn't, uh, she didn't know that I didn't know that it didn't cost jack shit. She's, you know, she's painted. But as I said to her, I said, that's the only present I remember as a kid, Mum. So it must have been something special about it. It wasn't, it's not about the, the wealth that you have, it's about the, the heart that, you, that gives it. And that's, I remember, I remember her crying and, and that was, so from that day on, I... Everything I made or everything I, you know, earned in footy, I just gave to them. Bought them their first house and their first ever stereo. And, yeah, so my upbringing was, was, we were very poor, but I never knew it. I never knew we were poor. And that simplicity of youth combined with love, is that something you, you've deliberately tried to pass on to your five kids oh, in their upbringing? It's so hard to do, but with, with modern technology, you know, it's so hard to do. You know, we, we try to be them, that... that Parent, them, them parents who, you know, oh, give me a phone for this amount of time. And then if, you realise that these days, if you don't give your kids what everyone else has got, they're alienated. So you've just got to kind of, kind of control. But, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, because Megan, my wife, comes from five kids, a very similar background to me. They were the same. They, they, they had, didn't know much growing up. And Brandy, you know, bought them their first house. And it was kind of very similar upbringings, both myself and my wife. And my kids, yeah, my kids are staunch. My kids are staunch. They're, they're, I couldn't be happier with, with the way they've, you know, turned out. They know we've got 
they've got all our blessings as love goes. Um, but yeah, you try to you try and instill into your kids that you know that's it's not all peaches and cream. You know, there's, there's going to be some dramas, and um, we've we've had that with our kids at different times. But at the end of the day, it's um, they're, they're beautiful. And I, I love being a dad. It's my, my favourite job. Looking back on those formative years, the exploration, the adventure. What's one key lesson outside of that love and support? One key lesson that you think you took from your upbringing? Money doesn't buy happiness. I just think that was that something stuck with me all my life. That money. And I remember mum or dad. I think mum said it to me, you know, watching a TV show and about some. It was like a. Um, the, it used to be like a Robin Leach in the eighties. It's called the rich and famous of Hollywood, and they each week they profile someone, and me and mum would watch it. And I'd say, Mum, what about these houses and you know these pools? And she goes, You know what, darling? But money doesn't buy happiness. And sure enough, you see these people who are multi-millionaires and uh, even billionaires, and they've got no one. They're lonely. So yeah, all the money in the world can't buy you anything if you haven't got it. So we, we're happy. We're we're comfortable. When I first retired in 2000, I went through a little bit of anxiety because I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I had three kids under six or under five. I just went from like having $450,000 a year down to $700 a week as a wage so, and a mortgage. So yeah, things got, so I just, I decided my, my, my mantra would be say no to nothing. So every time someone would ask me to do, um, for instance, C91.3 Campbelltown radio station, they said, can you do our Friday crosses on, on Monday with Rob Luckworth, who used to work at Triple M, ironically. I said, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to. So I'd, I'd be in my car, and th then Sunrise rang and said, do you want to do this? And I said, yep, do that. ABC Radio rang, I said, yep, I'll do that. Um, 2UE, yep, 2GB, yep. Uh, 2SM, yep. Then Triple M for Desert Legends, yep, I'll do that. Triple M for the Grill Team, bloody earth, I'll do that. Triple M, MG, Russia, Russia with MG, fucking earth, I'll do that. So <laughs> it's been, as I said earlier in this chat, I've, I've been blessed. I've been blessed. You don't just. Yeah, I know it's all. I don't. I know you don't um, just get handed these things if you're a dud. You know, I've always had an opinion. Um, I think living where I am is a big, real big tick. Um, I've never moved out of the rift. I never would. I think having the grassroots here still in my blood, a lot of people can relate to that, and that's why I think I still keep getting work, because most of the people who watch the TV shows that I'm on or the radio stations I'm on live where I live. Do you recall that first moment as a young boy with the football in hand? Do you remember what that moment was like? I do, yeah. I, I, my next-door neighbour neighbor across the road was going to footy training and I was, I was probably four and a half. I remember being born with a footy. I don't remember life without a footy. You know, Dad was always coming. I remember he'd, um, he'd be so tired at you know, six o'clock at night and daylight savings, he'd be, he'd be up since three. He'd go and work from um, like four four in the morning till lunchtime doing something with the Garbos and then he'd go and do another job from you know, one o'clock till six o'clock at night stacking shelves and stuff and he'd be buggered and he'd have a beer in his hand and he'd have, and he'd have a smoke in the other hand and he'd be kicking the ball grubber kicks to me to pick the ball up and I'd sidestep him and say so yeah I don't remember not having a football but um, then the bloke across the road was going to train and dad and his dad started talking and he said yeah come I'll 
taken with us, you know, he's, he was a year older than me. So he was going to play under sixes and I, I, would have, I would have been under fives at the time. But I went down, um, loved it, loved it for Wayland Warriors. And that was it. That was my, I played that year, a year above myself, um, full field. First time I got the ball in, because it was such a big field, we used to train between the quarter lines. So we went down, I remember again vividly, went and played against um, Waterloo in a trial game down at you know, Redfin. And here I go, I'm making a break. I see mum up the sideline running because she's always at the game. She goes, go, darling, go, babe, go, go, go. And I'd done this big swan dive and thought I'd score a try, but it was the quarter line <laughs> because we were training with it at the trial. And she goes, no, that's not the trial. I said, well, is it the fucking training? Like, come on. That's what I thought. I didn't say that, as obviously, as a five-year-old. But, um, yeah, and I dived and, and scored a try. It was, that was my first memory um, as a footy player. And then, yeah, the footy just... Footy's been my life. Footy has been my life. I'd be lost without it. Who were your idols at that young age? Who, when you were out on the field, who did you want to be? Well, Dad, Dad grew up... When I grew up, Dad was a mad Parramatta fan. So he's, I was born in Auburn Hospital. Dad lived at Granville um, until him and Mum moved out to Wayland. So he was always a Parramatta. And I remember sitting on the hill at a young age at Cumberland Oval watching, you know... Bob O'Reilly and Mick Cronin and Ray Price. and So I think they're the guys I grew up with, you know, idolising. Um, and ironically, in 1986, I got about the last five minutes of the game at Paris Stadium against Ray Price and Mick Cronin as, a, as an 18-year-old. What was that moment like? Ah, surreal. So I played under-23s. And then I, if, you, if you had a good game in 23s, the reserve grade coach would throw you a jersey because they only had two reserves. So you'd make it, the other four reserves would come from... Under 23s, and then likewise first grade. If you had a grade, if you got on a reserve grade like I did that day, then the first grade coach was Tim Sheens. He'd say, "Give him a jersey, give him a jersey," and I was one of them. So we're about we're getting spanked by Para, um, about 28-4 or something. And about five to go, the, the phone rings from upstairs, and Ronnie Oxley, our trainer, says, "MG." And I said, "Yep." Yeah. He goes, "You're on." I went, "What? What? I'm far out." Well, it was the most surreal moment. I packed Parramatta Stadium. I, I, it was a TV game. And I remember vividly, vividly, because I've got the tape, Ray Warren was the commentator, and he said, there's this young guy warming up on the sideline, and uh, he's strapped like Cardigan Bay, the, this great trotter that ruled the land for like 20, 30 years ago. And they always have yeah, strapping all down his legs and stuff. And I had, I'd, I'd played three games. It was my third game, so I had elbow strapping, I had my bootstraps, I, I sprained my ankle. I had strapping everywhere. So I did look, I, I didn't even know who Cardigan Bay was, but the dad said, you know, he called you Cardigan Bay and he said his name is Mark Gia or Gaya. And I just laughed because I, I copped that all my life. People get my name wrong, you know. Um, they always say Gia or Gaya because it was Renee Gaya, the singer, and who pronounced, spelled her name the same as us, but it was Gaya. Um, yeah, so that was. That was, amazing. that was amazing. I went back to Paramount Leeds Club after it and watched the game on the big screen and just, you know, proud, proud moment. Had that next season all in first grade and that's when I kind of lifted off. That five minutes coming on off the bench, what were you trying to achieve out there? I don't know what I was doing. I don't, know what, I don't even know what Tim Sheens was doing giving me an opportunity. I suppose he saw something in me and he just wanted me to get a taste of it, which I did. And I loved it. I loved the, the, the feel when you ran out and how much more intense it was 
than any other thing I've ever done, ever done before. You know, I just went wow. So I'd played the that same year. I'd played um, under 18 New South Wales team against Queensland. We had Norman Brawl. Got we beat them 36-6 or something. But so that was about June or July. Then this was this was kind of September in the last game of the year before semis. And Parramatta won the comp that year. Last time they won it. So a lot of irony in, in it. But I uh, just remembered how seeing that Ray Price. My God, there's Mick Cronin, there's the Zip Zip Man, there's Peter Sterling, like these blokes I've grown up idolising. You know, I'm on the same field as them. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Looking back to those teenage years, as you said, you left school early, but before footy kicked off, what were your career ambitions? Where did you want to take your life? I wanted to be a policeman. Yeah, I always grown up wanting to be a policeman. I, I, I done my year 10 um, when you just go to do work experience. Um, everyone would go to different places. I, I went to the police academy at Redfern for a week and trained with them and done everything that you're supposed to do with them. And the other week I went to the city to where the police headquarters were and like went through fines and people's excuses for fines. And yeah, I was just kind of like a filing like down there but it was just yeah I wanted to be a copper I admired policemen and policewomen and always wanted to be one so that was always that I never wanted to be I never thought I'd be a footballer professionally and did you get pushback from your family when football became a real career option was there that pushback was a hesitation from your parents no no never <laughs> no they, they encouraged it they said come on man let's go yeah they, they, they their blessing made it even you know and I, I it was Everything happened that, that year, 86, because I met my girlfriend at the time, who was now my wife, and, you know, that's a long time ago, you know, that we've been together. So, yeah, and I think that's... 1986 was the year it all happened. A very storied rugby league career. You went on to play 180 first-grade games. That year, you spoke about where you became a permanent fixture in the first-grade lineup. Did you feel the added... Pressure and the added expectations of being in that top flight squad. No, because I, I think that the what what you find when you go into a, a team that's so you know Greg Alexander was in the, my team, you know Brad Izzard, um, John Cartwright, uh, Roy Simmons, you know these blokes. You look around going, wow, Matt Goodwin. You know, I'm just going, I can't even believe I'm training with these blokes, let alone playing the same side as them. So it's 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 surreal. You never you never feel uncomfortable. You, you feel like the you're going to give the coach every, you give him what he wants for backing you, and you owe him something. Yeah, and I just loved being a first grade. It was so much quicker, less dirty than under 23s in reserve grade because there's more cameras on you in first grade. You get away with a lot more in reserve grade than under 23s. Um, but yeah, I, I loved every second of it. I, you know, if I had one regret in my career was that I didn't play as much uh, rep footy as I would love to have, um, or maybe I would have I loved to have hit 200 games, but suspension and injury curtailed that 
man, and I'm, I'm, as I, I'm happy. Who are the mentors in those early years of first grade rugby league, either a fellow teammate or a coach? Who really took, took you under their wing? I'd, I'd have to say Tim Sheens as the coach, really took me under his wing. You know, I, I was living in the same house as Brandy, you know, going out with his sister, so he'd always, we wouldn't do much footy talk, but when he'd say something, I'd listen. You know, he's just watching him at training and, and stuff he'd do. He, you know, I've never seen anyone else do what he does. He's so so self-expressive that, yeah, it's, it was almost like watching a Tchaikovsky playing football, just poetry in motion, just easy, easy. And when he take off, I've never seen someone so quick. So, yeah, he was, you know, I, my dad and me always didn't really speak much footy. Dad was always too nervous to watch me play, so he'd always be half cut when I'd come off the field. Mum was just happy that, you know, I'd got through unscathed, no injuries. So, yeah, I didn't really have, per se, a lot of... There was a lot of behind-the-scenes players... Uh, pl- sorry, players... Behind-the-scene committee at Penrith who, you know, gear stewards, and I'd always get there early to talk to them, them blokes. You know, they were the heart and soul of the club, and I wanted to make sure that they knew that I knew that, even as a young bloke. So I suppose to answer your question from earlier about the charity side of what I got into, I, it started before I even knew it started. It, you know, it started when I knew the blokes were struggling at training or, or something and I'd make sure that I'd go out of my way to let them know they weren't alone. And that respect for others, do you think that came from your parents and your upbringing? 100%, yeah, yeah. Both my parents and my wife's, my wife's mum, yeah, definitely. They just, they were just, for what they gave my four siblings, me and my four, three siblings and for what Megan's mum gave her and her five, the, the values they instilled were, were never ending. Being around some of those absolute legends of the game, legends of the Penrith Panthers, did you have that mentality that you'd made it? And I'll use inverted commas there. Did you think that the world was at your feet at that point? Probably not. No, not that, not at that stage. I, 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 I think I still knew I knew I had a long way to go. It's probably a couple of years after that, like in 1989, when I was a regular first grader with, you know, um, Ron Willie. 1988, when I was a regular first grader with as a you know, 19 or 20 year old. I played 22 games each year of that, them two years, and then 1990, I, I had an injury. 91, like we lost the grand final, 91, we won the grand final. That was probably the best thing that's happened to me in my sporting life. Rep honours are more individual honours, but when you lose the grand final the year before, and then you change the jerseys, you get four of you go on a kangaroo tour, a lot of barriers are broken down from watching these other blokes, how they do things, like Steve Roach and Mal Meninga and Paul Sirinan and, you know, Laurie Daly and Ricky Stewart and Alfie Langer. And you just, instead of seeing them as these fierce rivals on a footy field, you see them as blokes who miss their family. You see them as blokes who get sad when they, you know, they're on, on their own. And so it's, the Kangaroo Tour was one of the best things I've ever done. I, I turned 21 on it, on the Kangaroo Tour um, in France. Um, so that, that was one of the, real highlights of my life. And we come back, there was me and Brad Fittler and Brandy and Johnny Cartwright, and we came back and all of a sudden we were getting these new jerseys and we kind of had this, that was, that was the moment, that was the moment you just spoke about that I knew that this was now our time. I knew it was our time. I, I said that I'm, I thought to myself, there's no other forward who I'm scared of anymore in the competition. And I know Cardi felt the same way because we'd been with the toughest on tour. And 
they they weren't scary. As, as we, they weren't this nightmare that we thought they were going to be. They were just they were great blokes. They were fantastic blokes. And we saw Brandy on the Kangaroo Tour play every game and just... Freddie, on the other hand, put on 12 kilos. <laughs> That's an 18-year-old. But he quickly got rid of that. And he had that look in his eye from 91. We played a, a, a pre-season cup. Our first game was against South up at Port Macquarie. And I was just watching Freddie doing a couple of things. I went, uh-oh. I wouldn't want to be playing against him this year. And it proved to be prophetic because um, he had a magnificent year and we all played Origin, the four of us. Yeah, and we just were on this wave and we had the ensemble with us, you know. We had the Paul Clarks and the Paul Dunn who had been at a competition, won a competition with Canterbury. We just had these other real good, probably better than first grade players who were willing to win a comp after losing one. And we're never going to lose 91, even though we were behind at half time. Do you draw similarities from the 1991 Panthers team and the current Panthers crop? Always. You've always got to compare things. I mean, it's the local junior side of it, you do. You know, um, I think in that grand final we had 10 local juniors and a couple other blokes who were kind of brought up from the bush. Same as the current, yeah. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of, um, you know, both their best players were the halfback, um, had a really good ensemble as forward pack. Um, and some superstars as, as well on the side. So, yeah, I do. But I, I always like to be respectful of what people have done in that era. That's the reason I've never been to the club after a game when I've retired. You know, I just thought, that's why I had my time. You know, and I, I remember there's nothing worse than seeing ex-players who are blind drunk after a game kind of giving you a bit about, you know, why, if you, especially if you lost. And there was only a few occasions that happened, but it stuck with me. Then on a couple of occasions, we, we lost as ex-players at the club, and they'll, you know, they'll say, oh, fuck it, we wouldn't have been beaten by them blokes, you know. So, right you know. But that's, that was a rarity. And that was kind of what scared me away from, and has always scared me away from being a, you know, being at the club when these current players have their time in the sun, because I had my time. Now, I don't want to be like a dinosaur walking around the, the club going, you know, give me a, let me sign something or let me, you know, get someone to buy me a drink. I'd, no, my time was, I had my time and I loved every minute of it, but now it's, my solitude is at, uh, around the four walls of my, of my house at the compound. It was an unbelievable string of views. You spoke about the 91 Premiership representing your state and your country. You grew incredibly as a football player, but what personal growth did you see in yourself over those years? Oh, I think it's a hard question because I don't really recall what type of personal growth happened to me because it was all a bit of a blur. You know, you go from a kangaroo tour, you go, come back, you you make the grand final of the pre-season cup, we lose four games all year, play city of origin, play state of origin, play for Australia. Yeah, you're right, it was, it was 1991 was a magnificent year for myself personally, but I don't really recall a metamorphosis as far as my personality went or as far as changing. I, I was always the same me. I dare say I would have changed with social media these days. I would have been on the hunt for trolls a lot more. You know, they would have been... Because back then you had really no access to players. The only the people who had access to the player were the journos who, if they wrote something bad about you, really had no recall. So these days I feel sorry for the players who are subject to scrutiny from both, not just their coach, their fans or the media, but also... Keyboard ninjas who 
sit behind a keyboard and just want to bag people for a reaction. Whilst that was an amazing window, the, the subsequent years were incredibly difficult for you. The tragic passing of your close mate Ben Alexander and culminating in some off-field issues. What impact did those years have on you as a person? Yeah, they were very dark years uh, from, you know, from Ben's accident in 1992, probably until the end of 94. So a good 18 months. I was, I was in quicksand, you know, just trying to, get, trying to get out of it. Or, and I, I'd signed a deal with uh, the Western Reds, well, while I was at Balmain in, two, in 1993. 1992, when I left Penrith, um, no one wanted to sign me. They said I was damaged goods, even at 25. But Alan Jones at Tigers lent me a helping hand, and he said I'll sign him, blah, blah. So, yeah, I had, had one year there. And then while I was there, Peter Mulholland and Gordon Allen from the Western Reds franchise said, well, we've got a team in 95. We want you to be the major signing. And I said, OK, I'll go for $180,000 a year. Um, this was, you know, I went, so I went from... The Tigers didn't play in '94. Went up the north, went up the Central Coast and played for your minor. Well, you know, we won the comp there, but that's, you know, that's it was still a, still a comp. My wife fell pregnant at that time with our first kid. So yeah, it was it was, it was halcyon. It was it was it was a bit of a blur, but it was also pr- profound because a lot of things happens. A lot of things happened to me in that period. Um, so I had no intention of honouring my Western Reds contract. I said, I'm just going to start up here and, yeah, my wife gave me an ultimatum and, you know, I said, yeah, okay. So, I, luckily I went with her and, and did what she asked me to do and I was always going to a deep down, I think. But um, then we went to Perth with my wife heavily pregnant in 90, at the end of 94, about November 94. Yeah, we, and then well, my life has just been another chapter because that's, my first son was born in uh, February 12th, same day as my mum, um, 1995. And then I had a daughter in 96, then I had another daughter in, two, in 99, then a son, 2001, then another daughter in, nine, in 2007. So yeah, it was, it was, I think it was a godsend being, having a bub on the way because as soon as we had the bub, I changed, everything changed. During those tough couple of years, were you able to seek help? Were you looking for professional help to get you through those times? I, I wasn't seeking it. I should have had it. I should have had it. But no, I, I, I rebelled against everything and just just turned to the drink. Just you know, I was drinking, drinking schooners every day and you know, playing playing up the coast, hungover. You know, I just wasn't taking it seriously. And it was it was hard. It was very hard when you lose someone so young at 20 years of age. And you know, it's 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 so sad. It's sad for a long time. I'm still I'm sad thinking about it now. It's it's just it's a, it's a it's an emotion that never leaves you. It's uh, every time you think about it, you, you get sad and yeah. But then you know life life has to go on some way. And I had a good three years in Perth. Uh, had you know a daughter over there. And then when the Western Reds split uh, after the Super League war, I was 20, 29, and I rang Royce who was now the coach at Penrith. So that whole world had done a big circle. Um, you know, my first captain at Penrith was now my coach. The, the bloke I set up for two tries in the grand final was now my coach. Yeah, it was just surreal. But I heard he become a bit of a hard ass as a coach. And he knew I was a lad. You know, he knew from playing with me and 
that I love the party and I love to celebrate a good win. So he said, look, I, I, I rang him and said, mate, I want to come back to home. Because I left, I left in pretty bad circumstances, built, burned a lot of bridges when I left. Um, and I wanted to rebuild them bridges. And he said, yep, come back. But you, you know, you've got to toe the line. You've got to do this, you've got to do that. And I was a model citizen when I come back. You know, I, I come back as a... I was straight away entrusted with the young blokes coming through, like the Tony Pulitua's and Frank Pulitua and Reese Wesser and Ned Kadich. They'd be my training partners in the whole off-season, so all of a sudden I'd become who I was training. One of them blokes, them young blokes, I remember being them straight away when Matt Goodwin would train me, and, you know, it's it's fun, real funny how life spans and how it, you know, ducks and dives because I really got a big kick out of being a mentor. Do you think fatherhood helped with that transition back to Penrith and, and coming with a much more mm, big different time. approach? Big time. All of a sudden I had something else to worry about but myself. If you're a mug, then you have kids and you're not a mug anymore. Well, that's the way it should be. But if you're a mug, then you have the kids and you're still a mug, you're always going to be a mug. You're always going to be one because if kids can't change your life forever, there's no point having them because they, they just, they're your everything. And I, I always have that in mind. You know, that when I go to bed, when I wake up, the first thing I think about is my kids. Going through the adversity and the tragedy, looking back on it now, what advice would you pass on to someone who's going through a similar situation? Because mental health, we know, is, is such a pertinent and real issue in society these days. There's a lot of men, especially doing yeah. it tough. What advice would you pass on on reflection? Oh, you've got to speak to someone. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to not drown your sorrow in, in a scooter glass. Yeah, you've got to be, you've got to be open and, and transparent about how you're feeling. Let people know, especially your loved ones, because they're the ones who will care for you most. You know, I. I handled, it, I handled it the total wrong way and I, I could have been a lot better for it. But I, I, at the time, I just rebelled about it against everything. You know, I was very aggressive. And, but that was my way of coping. But in the end, when I look back at it now, it was a bad way of coping because I did it all, all on my own. And if I, if I, you know, even to my wife, it was her brother. You know, even if I said to her how bad I was feeling about it and, and it would have been a lot different. But, yeah, I, I'd say to anyone who is... Going through anything is, is bad. Just you got to talk about it. You know that's, that's we've changed a lot as a society. These days, it's not weak to have vulnerable thoughts. It's it's actually and the thing to talk about it, it makes you stronger, not weaker. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast, brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Mark, in 2009, you teamed up with Gus Warren and Matthew Johns to host Triple M's Grill Team. After about 10 years doing some more local media, it was an eight-year whirlwind journey for you. Did that whole thing exceed your expectations? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it started with me and... It started when I was on... I was doing Dead Set Legends on the Saturdays for Triple M. Um, but I was doing midweeks at 2SM at uh, Piermont. And I'm reading all these... I've been talking sport for about three years and I'm reading all these 
every Sunday in the Tally Telegraph, they'd be oh, triple M looking for the third wheel of a breakfast show. And they're auditioning all these people. And I'm thinking, fuck, I wonder what I haven't gotten a, a call. Like, I'm, I'm in this stable, you know. One day I'm at 2SM and I'm, I'm having one of these old phones where if I'm going through the voice messages on my phone and someone rings, that voice message goes straight to the, a memory. So I've got about six memories, six messages on my phone. And I'm going through them and there's one from, say it was, we're in August 10th. This could come from July 15th from Jamie Angel, the boss of Triple M. Hey, MG, JA. Mate, just wanted to see if you're keen for an audition for this new breakfast show. I went far out. This is a month ago. I got this. Here I am wondering what's going on. I was the first bloke to get an opportunity. So I rang him up straight away. I said, mate, this is what I told him that story I just told you. I said, I've just got the message. He said, mate, I thought you brushed me. I said, no. I said, can I, is it too late? He goes, no. He said, we've got Gus Wallen and Stewie McGill and Byron Cook, who's the panel operator. He said, we're looking for the third wheel. We've, we've had 50 auditions. He said, just, I said, uh, what do I have to do? He goes, come in tomorrow at 10 o'clock. They'll be in here and you'll jump in. And so I walked in. First thing I saw Gus and I remember him from the Aussie Goes series, Aussie Goes Bolly and all that type of stuff. Stuart McGill, well, you know, second best spinner of all time. And I had a big, you know, I'm an emotional big fella. I, I cuddle him straight away and say, hey, boys, nice to meet you. And went into, went into, had this chat around a table like this for 10 minutes. And they all walked, walked out. And the boss of that show came in and said, uh, how would you like to start next week? So I went, wow. He said, you're, the, you're what we've been looking for. Um, they only gave me a deal until December, but because they were after Matty Johns originally. They wanted him as the, but he was warehoused and he was, something else was going on with Matty. So um, and I said, look, I'm not going to sign for three months. I said, I want a three-year deal. So they said, yep, okay. So after two years, Stewie left, McGill, and then Matty came in and uh, Pagey came in. And so we had seven years together as a brekkie team and oh, it was just... Amazing. Me and Gus went to Gallipoli for the, the 100th year. Me, Maddie and Gus and Paige went to New York, went to Hawaii, you know, all these places we went to because of the grill team. And we're very different because, you know, the, the common thread with uh, breakfast radio is a boy and a girl and a sidekick type thing. And we were three blokes who were just talking shit, you know. And I, again, because of, my, because of where I was from, I was... I think I was, it made my transition easy. After seven or eight years, I just got sick of getting up at three o'clock. You know, I, I had five kids. I wasn't seeing them. I was always tired. Um, I'd go to bed at 7.30, 8 o'clock. So I'd get up at 3.15 in the morning. Um, and it was just, it was starting to wear on me. So I went to management. And I said, look, I'm, I don't want to do it anymore, the breakfast show. I said, but I still want to be part of the, 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 the network. You know, they said, well, okay, well, let me, we'll just come back to you. We'll, we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks and um, let you know what we've come up with. So they, then they came back and said, how would you want to do the, the rush hour? I said, only if I sign a five-year deal. So I did. <laughs> and uh, that's, well, I'm in my fourth year now. With the grill team, you guys became really the face of sport in Sydney, but you're also rubbing shoulders with oh, some of yeah. the biggest entertainers in the world. Being the boy from the West, the boy from... Penrith, Mount Druitt, 
Did you have to pinch yourself? Like, it yes. was quite an incredible daily, journey. Daily. Daily. I mean, for a start, Gus, Gus Wallen's best mate is Hugh Jackman. Um, I remember about a month into the show, we're standing there doing a break on live, live radio, and I saw this bloke walking through our, on our floor. It was a fucking giant, man. It was a giant bloke. I went, that's fucking Hulk Hogan on air. Like I said, I swore on air. I said, that's fucking Hulk Hogan. I went, look, it's Hulk Hogan. And I said, like, because our, our security guard was supposed to take him upstairs to Jackie and Kyle. But he thought, oh, the boys would love to see him. So he's walked past. We've gone, Hulk Hogan. He's come in, spent half an hour on, on air with us. I've given him, I've, they said, okay, after the break, can we give you an arm wrestle? MG wants to arm wrestle you. He goes, yes, brother, no problem at all. And then the brother goes, hey, mate, like this different voice. He goes, mate, my shoulder's fucked. Take it easy on me. He said, <laughs> I said, no, all good, mate. So we go back and he goes, okay, brother, let's go. Do you want to take me on? Like this straight into character. It was so epic. And then over the years, like people like, you know, Mark Warburg and Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill and, oh, Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme. People I've watched in movies for years were either on the end of the phone or in the studio, you know, on a, on a weekly basis. It was just, yeah, it was... I wanted to do, like, a, um, a, a coffee table book. because so I took... A, every, every person who came to the studio, I took a selfie of in my phone. I straight in, I go, take a photo. And there was only one person who wouldn't let me. It was uh, Ginger Spice. She goes, no, babe, look at my face. She goes, give me half an hour. So she went made herself up, and goes, let's do that selfie now. And she goes, with the pounding lips, so I'm going, wow, how good is this? So I want to do a, um, yeah, like a coffee book on, and I still might one day, on all the people I met in the, on the grill team and, and do like a little blurb on how they were, as far as that reality and expectation goes. But on a whole, no complaints. You know, no complaints. It was just, it was fantastic to be part of that. I, I loved every second of it. And your work now with the Rush Hour on Triple M, what are you trying to pass on? What inspires you about that role? Well, I, I quickly identified that I don't want to be one of them negative blokes on the media. I, I don't want to be one of them blokes who... Because I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, I've, I've had... I've had a chequered past in, in footy. And I don't want to come across as a, a told-you-so or, or an old dinosaur who says, mate, do this. Or I always have a qualifier. This happened to me. So I'm, I can speak with authority on this matter. And I wanted to be that uplifting show that has a really good rapport with their listeners, you know. So our ratings just gone bang, 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 bang over, you know, up and up and up and up. And our, our downloads on our podcast are over uh, 1.2 mil a year. Like it's just we're going, we're, our goal is to get 1.5 mil this year, um, which is a, a unheard of for a show that's on for an hour. So I think people resonate towards it. Um, we now have. Bathurst and, and Group 10 listening to us. We have Dubbo, we have Central Coast, we have Port Macquarie, Coffs Harbour. So it's, it's really got a big audience. Um, you know, I just love sport. You know, I love all types of sport. I, I played sport all, all my life, cricket. I was a swimmer, played basketball at a high level. Um, and rugby league, it speaks for itself. So it was all, you know, and I like having an opinion. Was, as, and again, as I say, as, as long as it's not always a negative one about uh, why did you do this? Why did you do that? I just want to have a feel-good type of show that you know gives back as well. We, we we're the only show in Sydney that has a quiz that you can't lose on. So I always want to, someone. I don't want anyone to lose. So if you win against that, we'll run up against something else.
last year you opened your new gym, MG Active. Yes. Why is that important to you, you know, opening a gym and bringing the community in to be physically active? Well, I've been wanting to do it for about 10 years. When I, but I had breakfast radio, so that would never have worked. Um, I, I had a gym built at home. I first started off in a spare room. Then I moved out to the, where the carport was and made that into a bigger carport. But then I enclosed the room, made that into a little gym, which about eight or nine of my mates would come on a daily basis. And then it was about, uh, ooh, about August last year. Um, no, sorry, August the year, August the year before. Uh, August in nine, uh, 2019, I thought, let's do it. You know, why not? So, yeah, we opened up on February 3rd in 2020 for seven weeks. And then COVID hit. So I locked down for nine. And I thought, that's it. We're never going to get back. But, and then that's, that's when I've seen the, the mental part of it that I didn't really kind of plan on. You know, I thought, we're going to get blokes here who are about my vintage, you know, mid-40s, early 50s, who want to come and train. And, and at first you'll get a few who just want to train because it's me. But once they come in, I'll show them how I train. I think they'll love it. And then I started to see what kind of effect COVID had on a lot of people. Um, you'd see people coming in and go, I'm rattled, mate. I need to do something, both men and women. I said, look, you know what? Look at this, look at this gym. There's no mirrors. There's no expectations. This is the only place where you can be you and, and sweat. And that, that message has is, is gotten across to a lot of people. Where I thought this would be predominantly a male gym, 64% of our clientele are female, mums, you know, because they can feel comfortable in here. We do classes every day, um, 32, between 32 and 36 minutes, the class goes for. Um, today was strength, yesterday was cardio, tomorrow's active fit, we do a bit of everything. Friday we've got a pump bars with boxing, it's, it's just mixing it up. Um, and I, I think we're more of a club than a gym. You know, it's just where people can come and feel comfortable. And that's been my biggest, it's, to date, outside of having kids and being married, it's been my biggest success. I've just loved every second of it. I, I get up at four o'clock, but the difference between here and Triple M is I live 40 seconds up the road. So I can fall out of bed, make myself a stiff coffee, and then drive down here with my son, who's now a part owner with me. You know, that's the dream I had to have my, my daughters. Uh, Montana just finished her Cert 3, so she's now a trainer here. So it's the three of us um, who are running classes, which is every dad's dream. Mark, it's been an amazing journey with so many chapters, adversity, incredible highs, crushing lows. Do you take the time to reflect on what has been an incredible life to this point? Um, I don't. No, I don't. It's, it's sometimes I get a memory jolt where I'd see something like an old game on Fox or an old clipping would be brought up on Facebook or something, and I go, fuck, that was me. Like, I went, you know, every time Origin comes around, they show the thing with me and Wally, every year. And every year, people ask me, why didn't you hit him? You know, I've got the, the standard answer. I didn't know whether to hit him or get his autograph. I was that in awe of the bloke. It's all true. It's, you know, if you said to me back then in 1991 that in the year 2021, 20, like, we're going to still be talking about this incident with you and Wally? Come on, fuck. No way. Like, 30 years ago, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, but here we are. And it's, it's always voted the top three moment of origin because of the... I think of because people, don't, people want to know what would have happened if we, if we just stood there and th threw at each other and toe-to-toe. -to -toe. The fact that we didn't, 
always has people guessing what would have happened. And I think that's why it stayed so much of a, a an infamous night. It was pissing down rain. I was told I was told to go into a job on the Queenslanders from my selectors. Wally Lewis got wind of that and knew that it, I was getting over his forwards and took it upon himself to calm this beast. And he nearly did. But you now we won the game. Michael O'Connor kicked a beautiful goal from the sideline in torrential rain and that was one of the best games of footy I've ever been involved in outside of the grand final, probably probably was. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's, that year was just, it's etched in, in stone for me and I see some memories of it every now and then that made me think, fuck, I, you know, it was, yeah, I, I had a, a good career. And do you believe in life, Mark, that we find ourselves or that we create ourselves as people? Like, do you think the path is laid out from point A to point B and we live it or that every decision you make every day shapes where you end yeah, up? Yeah, I, I think every decision we make has, has ramifications. Otherwise, we all just be sitting around looking at the sky, going, "What's next?" <laughs> you know, you've got to put your foot. You've got to be. You've got to be uncomfortable in life. You've got. You know, then times I spoke about when I'd say no, I wouldn't say no to anything. So hard to do that. So much out of my depth. And that's one of the things I, sp- I said to my kids. You know, do things that make you uncomfortable. I say to my kids who are sports people, train when no one's looking. Train when no one's watching. It's easy to turn up to train and train when the coach is watching or your teammates. The hardest part about being a sportsman or woman is to train when it's not time to train. It's, you know, it's the hardest part when you do it on your own. And that will make you, if you really want to be a sportsman, that will make you who you are. But yeah, I, I believe that there's, there's actions and there's reactions to them actions. And that every, everything you do has, has a reason. Mark, what are the next six months or so have in store for you? Momentum's picking up with the gym. You're continuing with your, your media commitments. What, what's on the radar for you? Six months. Okay, so this time in mid-year, the origin will be on. Um, yeah, the, hopefully the gym is still kicking away the way it is. Um, six months goes out quickly that you don't know what's going to happen. But I do know that I'll be, I'll be here. I'll be in the gym. Um, I'll be commentating for Triple M. I'll be doing my show and... I'll be still living 40 seconds away up the road. And how do people find out more about the gym, but also if they want to get in touch at all? Um, well, yeah, I, I, I'm on all social media, you know, on Instagram, on Twitter, uh, Facebook. I'm Mark MG Geyer. And the gym, well, that's got its, yeah, it's MG, capital M, capital G, active, A-C-T-I-V, no E. And, yeah, the bloke, uh, the man from Pain Away, Elias, helped me a lot with that. He said... Come up with the name. You've got the, the gorilla on the wall is, is part of his marketing at Paint Away, and he let me use that. The, the image around the wall that the '91 Grand Finals painted on the wall, so has a few memories in here as well. Um, but yeah, I just I, I love I love life at the minute, and we're just about to do a 12-week challenge here for the first time, um, which I'm going to do as well, just to see how how where I'm at, get a body scan, and um, so it's exciting times, exciting times. Let's just hope the, the COVID, this vaccine works. We're all back to normal within six months, and that'd be fantastic if it was. Mark, thank you so much for an inspiring and honest conversation. Wishing you all the best. Anytime, Jono. You're a good man. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast, brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by The Western Weekender. For more unique and inspiring stories from Penrith and the Blue Mountains, 
Be sure to listen to other episodes of the Passion and Perspective podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.